Rebels, I am Erin Patton, metaphysical master in a millennial age, and it is my life's purpose to guide you and organizations along an enlightened path. So I invite you to sit comfortably and tune in as I welcome you to the Meta Business Millennial, where we get the real conversations you won't get in the boardroom so that we understand this is exactly the path we need to be on in order to grow, evolve, and thrive. Greetings. I am Erin Patton, also known as Master L, and I want to welcome you to the Meta Business Millennial. This is my first solo episode, so I am super, super, I want to say like elated. I'm just so happy to be on this journey of sharing my soul, sharing my path, sharing my experiences, sharing my trials, my triumphs with all of you so that you may be inspired. You learn something. You may be able to apply it to your life. You may be able to grow and ultimately thrive because we don't want to just wake up and live every day. We want to wake up and we want to be able to thrive every single day. And I thought, what better topic to talk about today than just my life? And people are always surprised when I share with them, you know, even just what I've been through in the past three years. And when I go back to my childhood, when I go back to, you know, what I've been through over the course of my life, then people are really just like, oh my God, you're, you're amazing. Like, how, how are you even here today? And I'm just like, this is why I do what the fuck I do. Like, this is exactly why I call myself and I also align with the metaphysical master in the millennial age because metaphysics, spirituality, and just knowing myself, trusting in myself, loving myself has literally got me to now. Like <laughs> I wouldn't I couldn't even be here right now had I not had that inclination or that seeker's heart, that seeker's mind to really keep me on a path that there is something greater. And not only is that there's something greater, but there is not, but not only is there something greater and there is this guiding force. And not only that there's this guiding force, but this guiding force loves me. These guiding forces support me. These guiding forces are co-creating with me. And I'm getting chills because I, I honestly feel that. Like I feel that. And I believe that is a sensation that is an experience shared by every human being on this planet. It is why we are constantly seeking something more. Like we're always striving we're always achieving. A lot of people will say, oh, I do it for my kids. Or I do it for my mama. Or I do it for this and do it for that. But I would know that deep down, people are feeling that calling from God, feeling that calling from the divine to be greater, to do greater, to just show up as their best selves. And so I'll start from day one. You know, I was premature. I was about four pounds when I was born. And so when my mom birthed me, 
pretty much she couldn't take me home because I couldn't live and sustain on my own. So from day one, I was on my own. So I actually was in an incubator, essentially like a bubble, a closed container for two weeks. So imagine that, you know, I'm a mother. I actually had my son naturally at a birthing center with a midwife. And the moment that my son was born, like he was on my chest, we were nursing. And then a few hours later, we're back home, we're nursing again, we're nursing, we're nursing, we're skin to skin. Like the first two weeks, I mean, he pretty much never left me. Yet my mom had to look at me and my parents and my family had to look at me through a bubble. (laughs) And of course, I mean, they could come to the hospital and visit me and things like that. But I came to this planet alone. And I was in a family structure that really was doing their best. And I want to start by saying that because a lot of people move to and through this life, grown ass people, still mad at their mamas, still mad at their daddies, yet our parents are doing the best that they can and with the information and the knowledge and the awareness that they have. I just wanted to start there. So when I was born, my parents weren't even together. My dad was living with a whole other woman. And, you know, my mom was struggling with mental illness from a very young age. You know, actually, I learned later that, like, my mom fainted multiple times while she was pregnant with me. She had a lot of challenges, I'm sure, dealing with her own traumas and her own life path, the emotional issues with my father, having to raise two other teenagers. My mom had my sister, who was 15 at the time, and my brother, who was 17. So there was a lot on her plate emotionally. So by the time I became uh, six years old, which was, you know, I was in dance, I was in gymnastics, I was doing pageants already at a young age, playing piano, violin. I am like the, (laughs) the Renaissance child. And there was a lot of distractions for me. And I, you know, I remember this like it was yesterday in January of, of 1991, we got a phone call. We were getting ready for my buying cakes and stuff, getting ready for my dad's birthday. And we got a phone call that my sister had been murdered. And uh, essentially her and her domestic partner, her girlfriend at the time, they were living together. They got in a fight and had weapons and the woman stabbed her with a knife. And my sister bled to death. And she was 21 years old. 21 years old and, you know, at the prime of her life in college, and it devastated my mother. I remember my mother screaming and melting onto the kitchen floor and all the groceries falling everywhere. And I'm just like screaming, like, I didn't know what was going on. And I didn't know the full details. But a few months later, my dad ended up leaving for seven years. He was sent to federal prison. Come to find out he was dealing with some pharmaceutical prescription fraud issues in his doctor's office, and they took his ass away. In that time period, though, that, you know, between my dad leaving and my sister being murdered, my mom was in a a mental hospital or what do you call it? Um, They have better names for it now, but she was pretty much on suicide watch and dealing with intense depression, dealing with the loss of her daughter and really kind of like a rehab, really just trying to find her way. And so I had to grow the fuck up real fast, (laughs) taking care of myself, taking care of my mother, you know, when she came back and really striving. So you can 
imagine having the feeling like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders at six years old and performing very well, mind you, let me just say. And my mom, because of her emotional awareness at the time, we never spoke my sister's name again. Like I would catch her crying every now and then, and but we didn't talk about my sister. I really didn't cry because I didn't really understand what was going on. And then I was forced to lie about my dad too. So that didn't make the healing around that easy for me either. So anytime someone's like, hey, where's your dad? You know, because there's pictures of him everywhere. Oh, well, he's on a business trip or he's on vacation. And and literally that's what I said for seven years. So talk about not living in reality and not really learning how to process very traumatic emotions, burying them, suppressing them, not honoring them. This was what I was taught in a very traumatic way. So let's just continue with my life path, which was a beautiful one. I excelled in school. Like when I say excel, I would excel like straight A's, perfect attendance, track and field, cross country, dance, traveling, studying abroad, all of those beautiful things. I finished at the top of my class in high school. I got into every college that I applied to, (laughs) including Harvard, Stanford, Duke, all that, Wharton. And I chose to go to UT. So I went to University of Texas at Austin. They gave me a full ride. Actually, I got paid to go to UT. I had extra scholarships. I was in the honors program. I was planning to honors program, a liberal arts program and business honors program at the Macomb School. And I loved my life at UT. I just got to say, I'm a Longhorn Salada. And when I support them so much, University of Texas, so shout out to UT, Longhorns, big time. And, oh, this is making me so emotional. <laughs> I'm having a great time kind of reminiscing. and. It was at UT where a lot of the addiction started for me. Like I was a full-blown alcoholic. I was an alky like mug. Um, lots of drinking, lots of partying, just lots of not honoring who I am, like honoring who I was. I didn't really know. And I really became the consummate people pleaser. And I have a really good propensity for just doing enough to get good grades. Like I was able to still leave with like a 3.7 GPA and got two degrees and studied abroad for a year in Paris and wrote the thesis. So I was a highly functioning, traumatized being, which I believe many people are in the world, especially at higher levels. This is exactly why I'm so called to do method business, because I really feel fundamentally that some of us are just really high performing beings that are trauma inflicted. And I had my experiences too with like date rape and that also continued throughout my 20s because of my excessive drinking, my blacking out. And this essentially became my lifestyle for a good 10 years of just drinking to cope, eventually smoking weed, you know, dabbling with party drugs and just trying to escape, really escape pains, escape reality, because this is, you know, in many ways what I was taught when I was a little girl, you know, escape with my activities. Yet when you're older, you kind of lose those activities because it just becomes about work and what, you know, this society can extract from you and your labor. So I was really escaping myself, escaping my body every chance I could. Let me just put it that way. 
And after UT, I moved to New York, New York City. (laughs) I love me some New York. Uh, especially at that time. And it was my dream. Maybe it still is a little bit my dream to be like a fashion maven. And I, you know, loved working in the fashion industry. I was doing styling. I was doing marketing. I was doing e-commerce, which was really up and coming at the time, because this was like, as people were transitioning into the digital age. And so, yes, I'm I'm the quintessential millennial when it comes to that. And that was really fun and exciting. And I had a lot of beautiful experiences when I was in New York that really started to nurture my creativity, nurture my sense of self away from home, dealing with so many adult issues, like taking care of myself, paying bills, budgeting, all that kind of stuff. And yet still all the masking. I used to tell this story when I when I had my hair products, but literally my first job in New York City, I was working at BCBG Max Azria in their corporate sales office. And I had just cut my hair natural and not by my own will. It was a kind of a hair faux pas, hair going wrong, that I had to cut off all my hair. And I had dyed it blonde and was wearing a fro. And this was kind of how I was going to work. And then one day I was invited to go to this kind of fancy event. So I got it blown out straight. And I remember going to the office and everyone was like, oh my God, you look so fabulous. Oh my God, you look so demure. All these comments. And then the next week or two after my blue out got old, I came back with my afro. And my manager, very like professionally called me into this one-on-one meeting and, you know, was of course telling me all the things I needed to improve on. And then at the end he was like, and also you need to pull back your hair and, and, uh, and flatten it like you did a couple of weeks ago. And I was just like, excuse me. Yes. You, it is our company policy that, you know, your hair must be kept a certain way. You know, men have to wear their beard a certain way. So you can't wear your hair in that style. And, you know, I was 21 at the time. So I'm just like, excuse me, I'm African-American. Like, this is how my hair grows out of my head, you know? And so I called HR. They really supported my manager. It was coming from the higher ups, they were saying. And so very categorically, I showed up to my job. I told my boss, who actually happened to be a Black woman. And she was just like, Aaron, no, baby, that is not okay. Like, you need to rally with HR, figure something out because that is not okay. Your hair is your hair. It was my first act of resistance, if you will, or or defiance or for me, just fucking standing up for myself. And I actually uh, put in my letter of resignation the very next day. And that was really a powerful moment for me. My parents were like, girl, you better go back to that job and and pull your hair back. And I called some other mentors, too, who actually in the fashion industry. And they were like, you know, welcome to the fashion world. You better get it together. You know, and no one really supported me (laughs) besides my boss that was just like suggesting that, hey, I think twice about this comment. That's something that my manager, inappropriate, discriminatory comment that my manager uh, levied on me or not just comment, but request, you know, even more greater than a request. It was like a a demand or to keep my job. That incident really created this sort of, or I would say exacerbated that victim mind that I had around just being less than. Like already I was like in my mind, 
this child of a murdered sibling, incarcerated father, I'm Black, natural, I'm brown skin, growing in this Creole, light-skinned, straight-haired world. So like my hair was already a trigger for me as well. And so it really, (laughs) even more, brought up all of these emotions that I had no tools in how to deal with. And so I really started to mask, mask, mask after this. Like I really, after jobs, after that, I rarely ever wore my hair natural. I always had a fresh blowout. The lighter my hair could be, the lighter I can, you know, not be tanning or whatever, how I can talk so I can be proper and receive and skinny so I'm not too inappropriate being thick and black. Because <laughs> that's the thing too, y'all. But anyway, I was really trying to make it in this Euro-dominated world as a Black woman. In my physical human experience, let me put it that way, because that was kind of my my framing at that time. I really was on this quest of just being accepted and not just accepted by myself, because that wasn't even an awareness, but just accepted by the world. <laughs> and now that I do the work that I do now, I laugh because that's never going to happen. You know, actually, the world is designed to be the mirror of our insecurities if we haven't healed them, because that's the level that we, that's the energy, the vibration that we vibrate on. So for me, my insecurities were, were showing up big time everywhere I was going. Really, even though I had all these beautiful experiences, the, the interactions with the human beings, the people, my bosses were so contentious. I was never doing anything right. My peers were like, backstabbing and and hating on me and it it was really a a really like a minefield if you will navigating corporate landscape in fashion and retail at the time so I was like get me out of here get me out of here you know it's like what we call the quarter life crisis at the time I'm like 25 26 like yo this is not what I signed up for <laughs> like how I, hard I worked in school growing up and how I went in my activities. I was like, why is it like this out here to me? And it was like that because I wasn't right within. I wasn't accepting myself within. I wasn't balanced within. If anything, I was a ball of confusion. And so I did what I always, what I knew at the time, like I started going back to church and volunteering in the Catholic church because that's what I grew up in and and started to think about how to transition, if you will, career shift. And one thing that people do at that age, especially is go to grad school. And I had gone, done business school undergrad. So I was like, oh, let me try law school. So I took the LSAT. I studied for the LSAT for a minute, y'all. I took that LSAT. Mind you, I did pretty well, but I walked out that hole and I was like, I'm never going to law school. (laughs) Like I was like, I'm never going to law school. So I ended up doing the GMAT and taking it a couple of times. I actually applied for all these great schools and got denied. Actually, that was like my first kind of rejection moment. That was really powerful. I got into Columbia. However, within me, I guess it was my ego. I really wanted to go to Harvard. Let's just put it that way. I had friends at Harvard. I was always going to the Harvard African-American Student Union Business School Conference and, you know, seeing Desiree Rogers and seeing who else did I see out there that I, that was just really, I was really admiring. Pamela Joyner, Reggie Van Lee, all these very fabulous 
Black folks that graduated from HBS. It's just so many folks. <laughs> um, I can go down the list. But at that time, I really was just admiring these people and really seeing myself in them. And of course, like I told you before, I, I couldn't see myself. So I was looking for myself and other people. And this is something that we do a lot, especially young people. Like we look at the resume. For me, I was looking at the resumes, the bios of other people. Like, okay, I need to do all those things if I want to be great. Yet not knowing that, hey, I need to walk my own path. So going back to then, I took the GMAT. I ended up blowing it out of the water. I think I got, you know, near perfect score. And I got into Harvard Business School. And then I also applied for the Kennedy School of Government because I really started to um, do a lot of volunteering. Actually, I'll tell you all with this organization called New York Needs You at the time. And I was working with this wonderful woman. I'm going to just say her name because she's so special to me. Her name is Esther Lee. And she was a young high school student when we were in the organization, first-generation college student. That's actually the mission of the organization is to support first-generation college students in getting into college. And she did not speak very good English. She was very shy. And I remember working with her on getting her English type. We used to read articles together. She used to, I had gave her extra homework. We were doing vocabulary words. You know, Esther was getting it together. And I'm not tell you, when it came time for graduation, she was nominated to give the graduation speech. Come on now. Esther inspired me as I was inspiring her. And so I was really growing energetically in a way that I didn't even realize that I was. And so that work with that organization, and I remember PJ Kim was executive director at the time. You know, he um, had done the joint degree. And then I also had some friends that were doing the joint degree program at Harvard. So I was like, I'm going to do the joint degree at Harvard too. And I did. (laughs) And interestingly enough, going into going into that first year, I took like nine months off and I came home. I worked at Tootsie's. I met some really great folks in Houston who I'm still very close with today. And I ended up spending three, four months in Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro. And I remember I started this Tumblr called Rio is Real, R-E-A-L, Rio is Real. And it was the most affirming experience for me. Actually, I remember being so devastated when I was leaving Rio to go to Harvard. I was like, am I making the right decision? But my soul knew I was about to embark on something great, transformational, if you will. And being in Rio, um, I called it voluntourism because I traveled to Bahia. I traveled to Sao Paulo. I traveled to different parts of Brazil while I was there. But I also volunteered with this dance school, Ballet de Santa Teresa, while I was in Rio and living at Casa Amarillo. Was it Amarillo? <laughs> Casa Amarillo with my girl Desi, who we'll get to later, Desiree Gibbons. And so, yeah, so we had a blast in Brazil. And so, you know, moving into my Harvard experience, I started at the Kennedy School. And the Kennedy School was really amazing. It really introduced me to this world of politics and government and nonprofit that I definitely had little to no exposure to or experience with. And that was something that really I am so excited to have had that experience now because I feel so well versed in how 
these structures are organized and how they're operating because I started, I really saw it from even at the business school, it's like the belly of the beast, you know? Harvard is a, a very, uh, for our terms, kind of like an ancient institution in that, <laughs> American terms, in that it really set the program for how we would operate our systems in this age. And I got to see that firsthand, working with fellows in the Institute, meeting people like the governor at the time, whose name is escaping me, Duval, Patrick, you know, meeting people like prime ministers, like go, going on treks to Japan, meeting Shinzo Abe, actually also going to on treks to North Korea, going on trips all over the world, honestly. And that Harvard experience was very enlightening for me in that I wanted to be this like wealthy societal girl and that was not my upbringing, you know, even though I had a privileged upbringing, especially for the circumstances that my family went through, that facade that I tried to put on, it didn't serve me. You know, I don't think I was well received by my peers. I don't think I was able to make genuine connections, authentic connections. And it really distanced me from myself. And so you know, what I learned looking back, because I always like to say, like, even in this journey now, is that I went from Harvard to healing, is that I took what I could from the experience. I performed at, at the best level that I could, but it that was when my trauma was at its highest. Like, when I was in my late 20s, I had been through a lot, obviously, in my life that I had never dealt with properly. I remember being in classes with, like, Marshall Gantz and writing about my experience for the first time with my sister, even my application essays about my sister, about my dad, talking about it for the first time in my late 20s. And having classes like adaptive leadership with Ron Heifetz and, you know, in other classes that really started to be a more emotional leaning and thinking about our stories and thinking about who we are. But I will never forget that Marshall Dan's class was public and private narratives. And I remember I would try to make up stories and he'd be like, you can't make up a narrative. That's not a narrative if you're making it up. <laughs> you have to tell your story. I didn't even know how to tell my own story. And luckily that's something I can do pretty well now. Actually, I enjoy doing it now. And I'm actually doing it now because that is where the healing starts. You know, the healing starts for, started for me then, and I didn't even realize it. And so by the time I graduated from Harvard, I ended up moving to Detroit, and I got a wonderful opportunity. It started with an internship at Shinola for a summer that then led to a fellowship at the Kresge Foundation. And it was really beautiful also to have been able to do some stuff at Harvard. I got to go back for a second in Brazil with startups. So I worked at this accelerator called 21212. And we were literally pairing capital from New York 212 with businesses in Rio area code 21. And it was just a really amazing experience to really have that startup accelerator, social enterprise experience in, in Brazil kind of introducing me to Shinola and then also to the Kresge Foundation where I worked in New Orleans, which was amazing. I was a chief of staff to Rip Rapston, the president and CEO of Kresge Foundation. Shout out to Rip. 
you my nigga for real. <laughs> I just just say it. I love him. Like he is almost like a godfather figure because he showed me how to be like a creative leader. I remember he used to like color and sketch all his strategies using symbols and pillars and you know then I think about it you can make come from the masonry lineage where all of those symbols and things really are symbolic of uh, greater energies and meanings and so he did a, a beautiful job in mapping out how the Kresge Foundation would deploy its $3.6 billion. So that was one of the greatest lessons I believe I had. And I know that's going to inform a lot of what's going to happen for me later in my life and how I support my philanthropic efforts because now I have the Commission Foundation. <laughs> no coincidence there, the Kresge Foundation and the Commission Foundation. And working in Detroit, also being director at Pony Ride, which was or which is a nonprofit focused on supporting creative and social entrepreneurs. We had a massive creator workspace with a dance studio and a workshop and a, and sewing machines. And we had cosmetic companies, hair product companies, clothing companies. It was so dope working at the Pony Ride experience and really kind of bringing together all that I had been gathering uh, in terms of my knowledge set, my skill set up until then. And while I was in Detroit, I have to also note on the emotional side, I was crumbling. I was really crumbling because I was in this relationship where we were living together. I didn't even want that, but do would leave. And I was really being smothered, if you will, controlled, manipulated because my energy was so low. You know, I was so trapped in my trauma that I couldn't even protect myself. I couldn't get out of it. So I was like a prisoner in my own home and my experience. And that's why I say I went from Harvard to healing because I had to break free from that emotional trap that I had created around my, my mind, my emotions and myself. And it started for me, because I know this is kind of where people are like, okay, how did it really start the healing by going sober? So that's how it started. Like I had this really incredible tumultuous experience with my partner at the time, boyfriend, whatever you want to call it. And he was like so aggressively like on me, almost like beating me, like I burned my leg, like on the heater. It was, I ran out trying to call police. It was really traumatic. I remember even my throat, feeling in my throat. I was so embarrassed, ashamed, guilty of how it transpired that I had no control. I didn't even speak about it. Like, actually, this is probably one of the first times I'm speaking out loud about it. And I remember a friend even approached me about it. And I was even too scared to even open up to her about it. Like, it was that scary. And I remember telling him, and he got so angry. And he was like, you better not tell anybody. Ah. And I just was like, I have, I can't drink anymore because I can't be that out of control where I'm not able to protect myself. So for the rest of that relationship, I pretty much never drank again, never smoked again. And that's really when the awakening started to happen for me. And I started going to church. I went to church so much. I go to church sometimes twice on Sundays. I went to Bible study. I was volunteering for the church. I got so engulfed because I, that's all that I knew that it culminated in me actually going on a Jesus trek to Israel. Um, I had even gone out to Bethel. It's this beautiful church um, in uh, Reading. 
in Northern California. And I was just praising so much and opening up to so many metaphysical aspects of Christianity and nature. I remember we um, entered into the energetic field and walked up the Mount Shasta in Northern California, which is a very powerful energy at Shasta. And this is where I really started to question. (laughs) And in my Israel trip, you know, I went to Israel by myself and I had a guide that took me to Palestine, to the West Bank, because that's, you know, where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We put our feet in the Jordan River. We climbed Mount Transfiguration. You know, we went to, you know, the olive tree. We went every place in the Bible that kind of like, you know, this is part of my questioning started. It was kind of like a Disney world. It was kind of like, all these little biblical settings were massive churches, massive tourism in the name of Jesus. And no one out there really looked like me, nor was no one really welcoming of me. And that really felt disconcerting for this to be energy that I was aligning with and and really receiving and um, loving, you know, I cried everywhere I went, you know, in, in Jesus' name, you know, we even did all the steps of the um, the crucifixion and the different burial places. He had different burial places and all of it just seemed unreal. And so that was my experience. And so when I came back home, I really started to ask universe, okay, really show me more about Jesus. Show me more, you know, I want to know more. And that's really when my metaphysical journey began. That was in 2017, I remember around May, because a lot of my, um, I did a sozo ceremony at Bethel, actually, which was like a, sozo was a Greek word for heal, but like a a soul healing almost. And I really started to release trauma around my sister and replaced her with people in my life that were not giving me sister love energy. They were actually giving me very abusive energy. And when I also started to heal around my father and how I started to and and continue to bring masculine energy into my life that was probably reflective of my father and and his faults and things like that. Yet I needed to start to heal that energy. And as I did that, and also the fear of my I even said this and wrote about it at the time, the fear of my, my, my father dying. And little did I know that five months later, my father would die. And so I was in many ways preparing my soul for this great catalytic awakening and what I was calling, we used to call at the time, a DNA explosion. And so I got introduced to a Renoapian religious tradition, which is, was founded by Dr. Malachi Z. York. And he was kind of a, coming out of the offshoot of the Five Percenters and the Nation of Islam. I actually learned about him because I kid you not, Prodigy from Mob Deep had passed away around August of that year. And I remember watching an interview with him. And in the interview, they were accrediting him with bringing knowledge and uh, wisdom into the hip-hop tradition in almost like cool way. And he cited, alluded to Dr. Malachi Z. York as being one of his teachers. 
And they showed some of his pamphlets in the interview. So I immediately was like, who is this guy? And, <laughs> you know, at the time, and I think still he is, he was in prison because that was just his path as a religious leader. However, the, his teachings, and he had a small group in Detroit that still gathered to talk about these metaphysical things. And, you know, I got my eyes lit up because it started with me kind of just calling in and talking to these people and reading the holy tablets and, and understanding about Nibiru and planetary systems and planet risk and all of these multidimensional, uh, multi-universal things and learning about atoms and doppelgangers and the Philadelphia experiment and Nikola Tesla, because this was before the Tesla came out and all of these esoteric occult slash conspiracy theories that my dad actually introduced me to you know I'm a flip 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 flop back and forth when he came back from prison so when he came back from prison I was 12 years old and he actually gifted me with books like Hans in the Game, Deepak Chopra's Spiritual Laws of Success and books like this to start to teach me about chaos theory and about conspiracy theories and and things that were I remember me watching like the JFK documentary about like you know how JFK was not really killed in the way that we suspected. So he really started to introduce me to these things when I was 12. And it started to resurface when I was in my early 30s. I think I was 30, around 30, 31 at the time. You know, ironically, I was reading the chapter around how the soul exits the body and death in the plane ride home when my mom called me and said my dad had flatlined. This was October of 2017. So, you know, today is October 20th and the day he passed, it was October 17th. So that was five years ago. And, uh, oh, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, yep. And so, you know, I'm just kind of sitting with the emotion for a second. Oh, that was the time when I started to really feel pain. Indescribable pain. I had never felt pain like that before. In the loss of my father. And no one really ever saw me cry in public. Even at his funeral, I didn't cry. I was, you know, tasked with giving the eulogy and planning the entire ceremony, buying the plot, everything, headstone, everything, because my mom was such a mess. And we'll get to her in a second. And my you know, my brother was doing his best. And so I was having to carry all the weight. And I remember every night going to the gold book. That was a book also through the Nuwapian tradition and praying, praying in their language and also in English, ancient Egyptian deities. Because I was just really... I didn't understand death. I didn't understand loss. I didn't understand grief. I didn't understand the emotions that I was feeling. And I was just looking for a savior. I was looking for something and someone to take this pain away from me 
And now that I do the work that I do, ooh, I'm glad no one did. I'm glad no one took that pain from me because I needed to feel it. And I tell you, I felt it for a long time. Because it was at that time, too, that I was launching my hair product company, Deo, Defying All Odds, and doing it with the partner who, in my view, I shouldn't have done it with. You know, I can say that because, you know, we go like, I should have, could have, would have, but it happened the way it happened because I, I didn't have the space and time and energy to believe in myself fully. Yet that was a hard lesson that I had to learn and sharing my business with someone who I don't believe offered the 50% that was legally granted to him. And so I moved forward because I energetically could not fight it. I could not, uh, as much as I tried to have an agreement and things like that, I was just being manipulated because I just allowed the manipulation because I did not have the energy to stand up. And so I pushed through. Come on now. I pushed through as best as I could, raising money for my company, doing uh, hair shows, doing pitch competitions, doing social media all day, every day by myself. I was working myself to death. And this is why the meta business journey is so important to me because we oftentimes see our purpose in our work, our identity in how people perceive us through the lens of our careers. And that was me. I had nothing else. I had nothing else. And so by the summertime, you know, I had just gotten this, won the pitch competition at the Essence Festival. My mom was a mess. She was calling me, getting locked out, locking herself out of the house, um, losing keys, losing things, hearing voices, seeing things. She was losing her mind and I could not support her emotionally. So the weekend when I was launching my, we got the full product line set up, finally manufactured everything, manufactured all these damn products. And then I got an opportunity to have these products showcased at Macy's, the local Macy's down near Detroit. I got a phone call from my aunt that your mom attempted suicide. And, or was thinking about attempting suicide, had the plan, the letter, like all this shit. I went home. I came home, came home to Houston. And so I came home with the initial intention of saving my mom. You know, it kind of felt, I'm sure you can experience this. Oh, because not only did I experience that with my mom, but it really felt like it felt when I was a little girl. Losing my dad, you know, he went off to prison. And actually, when my dad passed away five years ago, I would say about a month later, maybe a little longer, one of my best friends, Desiree, who I mentioned was my roommate in Brazil earlier, was murdered. And she was also murdered in a similar way as my sister. She was, they slit her throat and left her to die on the side of the road in Jamaica. 
So I was dealing with the death of my father. I had to go to New York to my girl, who was also like my sister. I loved her so much. Desiree's funeral. And then dealing with this business and then having to take care of my mother. And by the end of 2018, like a year later, after my dad and Desi passed and, you know, my mom was going through what she was going through, I gave everything up. Like I moved out of my house in Detroit. I had a time getting that guy out of the, out of the place because he didn't want to leave and he wanted to take my business from me and claiming his, you know, his part, taking me to court. I went through a, a legal battle with him that lasted damn near up until last year, you know, over hair products that I paid for that I tested on my hair. This nigga didn't even have no hair. You know, that was my story. You know, I shared with you guys how I had issues with my hair coming from BCBG 10 years prior. So I used that story as my inspiration for what my hair products were. Offering to people is this new sense of identity, this new sense of love and self and care for your hair. And I was in full on victim mode. Like I even feel it now in my throat talking about it because I had experienced all this loss in my business, which was my identity, in my family, my father, my mother, and my friend, my dear friend. And I felt like I had nothing living in my childhood bedroom. You know, that is where the metaphysical journey I was really starting to begin for me. You know, I actually was starting to study with uh, the University of Commission Sciences under the tutelage of Dr. Phil Valentine. And growing my soul, I had met my son's father very quickly and got pregnant because I was trying to fill that void. I really wanted to intentionally get pregnant. I was I was really eager to create my own family. I thought this was my chance to create something beautiful with Harlow's dad and that turned out very quickly to not be a fit. And I still persisted and pressed on in caring for my mother. And so, you know, by the time I had Harlow at the end of 2019, you know, I was full on in this metaphysical study and healing from the loss of my father and my friend and also accepting the transition, that mental transition that my mother was going through dealing with the drama that was at the time my family who didn't understand, couldn't really fully support, and in many ways were taking advantage of me, family members, that I started to shut myself off from the world. And sometimes this is what we have to do is be alone. You know, when those thoughts come of like, am I even worthy of this life? Then it's time to be alone. And I had my son and I knew I needed to live for him. So that's how I started to really lean in to how do I care for myself? How do I heal from my past? And I started journaling more intentionally. I started reading books that were really focused on how to manage my emotions. I will never forget that book by Ken Key's Handbook to Higher Consciousness really started to allow me to see my addictions. And not addictions like 
necessarily the physical ones, but addictions in the sense of addictions to people pleasing, to power, to control, to all of these things that we use to cover up the voids of pain within. And that's really what's happening for me. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful for that growth because it was expanding me, expanding my awareness, expanding the consciousness. I started doing more intentional affirmations. I started practicing yoga and really started to getting into my body, getting back into my body and the pain that I was feeling and experiencing. And so as I was doing all of this, you know, Harlow was going through his journey as well. You know, Harlow was a beautiful baby. He was such a beautiful baby. And as he was growing and developing, he started to have digestive issues that in many ways were probably brought on by the tumultuous relationship that me and his dad had, especially sharing the custody with him at such an early age, going back and forth, eating different foods, being in different environments. He was just, he was just such a fragile baby, having to go through all these different changes that it really had an effect on him physically. And he lost a lot of weight. And a lot of people criticized me because they did not understand even with the supplements and the drinking of the other milk and the foods that I was giving him that I was breastfeeding him and also taking him to a a Chinese medicine doctor, herbalist and acupuncturist to really start to heal him because there was really nothing more that we could do. And his father wasn't around. His father wasn't taken for him either. And we were going through this pretty intense mediation, if you will, around our custody because it really was for the best and it really is for the best for Harlow to be in a primary environment until he gets an age where we can do more of the sharing. But being close to me was absolutely important for his development. And so I wanted to just have a basic parental custody of, you know, full custody with the mom, visitation with dad on weekends, extended holidays, and you know how it is set up. And that was a huge trigger for his father, in addition to other things that we were having, that when he picked up Harlow for our visitation, he saw that Harlow was very underweight and would not receive, you know, what I was offering to him in terms of his diagnosis and the treatment schedules that we had been on for the past two, three months, that he called Child Protective Services on me. And they allowed Harlow to go with his dad for over a month, 30 days. So Harlow was a very fragile 14-month-old, 15-month-old baby at the time who was breastfeeding with his mother every day and was ripped away from me. And this happened, you know, just last year (laughs) and uh, was really the lowest point, I have to say, of my life. You know, even after all I'd been through with my mom and my dad and Desi and, you know, relationships going to court, like this court battle was by far the most painful. And I literally had to fight for my life because I was so suicidal and I had to fight for the life of my son who I knew deserved better care than what he was getting from his dad and, you know, the hospitals who had no way of actually treating him in his condition. 
And since then, we've gone through lots of therapy and things like that, that and continue to do the acupuncture. And he had to just grow and develop on his own. And we see him now. <laughs> you know, it's it's the truth was always there. And I just wasn't able again to have the energy to stand up for myself, but I had to have it. And in many ways, I look at that as just one of the probably many initiations that I had to go through energetically, metaphysically, to test my willingness and my strength for myself and how far I really would go to honor myself, to believe in myself, to love myself, because that was not there. The doubts were so strong. The judgment was so strong because it was coming from everywhere around me. And I barely had, like I was really holding on by the hair of my chin, 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 like for real. And coming out of that, even as I was doing my accelerator and taught doing my meta business and, and really starting to imagine my, the direction of my company, now I was still going through the trenches of emotional, physical trauma. And, you know, all the while still nurturing my mom's condition, which was worsening at this time because of what she feared for Harlow's sake and also what we were going through in terms of her treatment and coming out of prescription drugs and cleansing her system. And so it really has been. My life ain't been no crystal stair, you know, it ain't been no crystal stair. and so. We will continue to talk and walk through all of the things that I've been through in my life that got me to now. Yet that experience with Harlow and with my father and with my family and with my work and career are all of the experiences that created the meta business being that you see right here in front of you. Because it is in these trials, it is in these challenges, it is in these tribulations, it is in these depths of darkness that I searched and sought the light within. And that is exactly what I'm calling you to do. Because if I can do it, you can do it too, pretty much. And essentially, this is what this podcast is about, the Metabolicist Millennial is about. It is about seeking your truth. It is about going into the depths of darkness within and without and trusting that you will be greater on the other side. So I know that was a whole lot. That was a whole lot. That was a whole lot. But I am so, so grateful that you shared this time and space with me that you are going to be tuning in to the Meta Business Millennial week after week because we will be going deep. We will be going deep to the depths. And we are going to be looking at our souls, looking at our past, looking at our traumas, and also celebrating them. Celebrating them, seeing the beauty in them, seeing the growth in them, and seeing the opportunity in them. And that's what this work is about. That's what this school of life on this planet Earth is about. 
So I invite you to definitely leave a review, share this with your friends, with your family, with your peers, whoever you think needs this. And of course, check out my website, themetabusiness.world to find out more information about me, find out information about my team and how we can support you because this journey is not a lonely one. You may be alone, you may feel alone, but this journey is not meant to be a lonely one. You are fully supported. Okay, my loves. Thank you again. I love you. Peace. Did you really love this episode of the Meta Business Millennial Podcast? Well, I am honored and I appreciate you subscribing, leaving a review and sharing it with your friends because your feedback allows us to co-create more enlightened conversations. And if you're interested in growing your soul now, head over to my website, AaronPatton.com to find all the show notes, links and free resources to get your energy activated today. In the meantime, stay bright, my friends. Much love and light. Peace.